Please join with me in prayer. We claim your promise, O God, to be with us always. And this morning we ask for our hearts and our minds to be open for what you have for us this day. Amen. Today's lessons from the stories of two in-laws, Simon Peter's mother-in-law and Moses' father-in-law, have some lessons for us. Mark's gospel informs us that a group of folks have been to the synagogue and have witnessed Jesus healing those in need, and they have moved on to the home of Simon Peter and Andrew. James and John are with them, and they learn that Simon's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. The family's stressed, they're worried, because in that era, fevers were considered to come from a demonic force. So they took Jesus to her bedside, and Jesus takes hold of the woman's hands, lifts her up, and brings her healing. Her response is to express her gratitude through service by getting up and offering hospitality. Now, when I first read Gospel Lesson, I got a little agitated thinking, okay, Peter's unnamed mother-in-law seems to be near death, gets healed, then she gets up and heads to the kitchen. <laughs> but then I flashed on a past era of my life and experienced the text in a new way. When I married into an ethnic Mennonite family, it took me years to adjust to the culture. Ken grew up in Dallas, Oregon, where there were three strong Mennonite churches of which all of his relatives attended. And every time we went to Dallas, there was an expectation that we would stop and visit with various relatives, of which there were many. Hospitality has been a core value of Mennonites. And one of the long-standing rituals of the women of the older generation is that of baking on Saturday in order to have plenty of food to serve on Sunday for guests who would drop by. When we would drive into Dallas Sunday afternoon in the early years of our marriage, we would park our VW bug on Miller Avenue at the curb of Aunt Urena and Uncle Jake's home next door to Aunt Teen's home. We would look at each other and make our pledge. Number one, we will stay for a short visit. Number two, we will not get caught staying for a meal. Number three, we will leave early so we can get home now, as soon as our stopped car came to the edge of the curb, Aunt Urena would have been at the kitchen window. She would have spotted us. She would have immediately dialed Aunt Teen next door, alerted her, we are at the curb. She would then head to the refrigerator, pull out the ham that she had had at noon, while she also was picking up a bag of Swebach German rolls. She would then get the, the preserves that she had canned the summer before, headed to the table. While we are marching up to the steps, Aunt Teen is coming around from the house next door with rugabrot in her arms, German rye bread, a, a salad, and whatever else she could juggle. So as Uncle Jake opened the door, we would walk through and 
Aunt Urena would handkin the jar of pickles for him to open and then invite us to FOSPA. <laughs> you see, hospitality for Aunt Urena and Auntine was a way of life. It was their gifts that held the family together and created the glue that kept the younger generation in the fold. Service was the essence of who they were. They took the time to offer a table of belonging. It was how they put service to God into action. And service was how Peter's mother-in-law lived out her life and how she thanked Jesus for her healing. For our second in-law lesson, which comes from the book of Exodus, we need to back up and review an earlier piece of the story. Jethro, the priest of Midian, who is Moses' father-in-law, has just escorted his daughter Zipporah and his grandsons back to be reunited with Moses. They met at the wilderness site where Moses was camped at Sinai. Jethro had been a key player in Moses' transition from the palace to the sheep herding business. Whatever doubts he may have had about Moses and his call to Egypt, he appears to have been extremely supportive and anxious to hear all about the journey, all about the escape. Jethro threw a party to celebrate the fact that God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt. The celebration included a burnt offering to God expressing gratitude. And in today's scripture, we find the kinfolk again gathered around the campfire at Moses' tent. And the family and guests were seated together discussing the event of the day. And Jethro had been an observer all day long. And the timing seemed to be right as he cleared his throat and offered Moses a mirror of what he had observed. He had watched him process information. He had observed Moses listening intently to decipher the truth of the folks who came to him. And he had witnessed him dealing with complex issues as well as petty ones. Jethro's voice takes on strength as he discerns the crux of the issue and addresses Moses in love. He is clear. What you are doing, Moses, is not good. You will surely wear yourself out. You are in danger of burnout. This isn't a good situation for you or the people. The task is too heavy. Quit trying to do it alone. Jethro concludes his analysis with an action plan. Educate the people, teach them the rules, look for leadership skills. Those who honor God are to be trusted. Let the developed leadership discern who handles which cases and which ones go to you, Moses. And Jethro gave Moses the key. Let them bear the burden with you because then you will endure. In managerial terms, Moses is to interpret and articulate public policy. Now, if Myers-Briggs had been a part of the business schools on the Gulf of Aquaba, 
I suspect Jethro might have been labeled an ESTJ, extrovert, sensing, thinking, judging. He had the skills to know how to go about building the infrastructure that was needed for the next stage of their journey. He had the insight to know that the body of people needed to experience a paradigm shift. The style of leadership that Moses provided for so long had been what was needed to make the transition from slavery to the desert journey. And now they were ready to take the steps needed to live in community. Jethro was able to give feedback to Moses, indicating that the people are now ready to be given responsibility and authority in order to strengthen them and enable them to grow into their own gifts. It strikes me that Moses is being invited by God to move out of his archetypal role of ruler to that of sage and teacher. He is still the leader, but he's being invited to lead in a new way. What we know about human nature is that change doesn't happen without some rocky transitions. The tricky part about systems is that we can outgrow them and not realize it. As always, we are all invited into the story. Transitions are a part of our story, but they are a huge part of the story of the last couple of years. We too know what it is to have a radical shift in our community patterns. It was a year ago that I sat at a table with elders Barry Frisbee and Sarah Holcomb, along with Pastor Rod, being interviewed for the position of interim pastor of community life and outreach. I remember talking about the complexity of not only saying goodbye to beloved Britt Carlson, but also dealing with how to make the transition of a church community reuniting in person, having been only on Zoom for such a long time. We had adopted and adapted to a whole new way of doing church. We kept our sweatpants on and just made sure we had a decent blouse or shirt on <laughs> before setting the computer on the coffee table on Sunday morning and connecting with Zoom. We eventually learned to use mute when the dog barked or when the clock chimed. Unlike some churches, we didn't disagree over wearing masks. We slowly began returning while juggling Zoom and in-house church. The transition became even more complicated when Administrator Rachel Joy left in December for a new ministry position at Holden Village. All of this was going on before the search committee began their work of finding a new staff member. Do you remember Rachel's passionate plea as she said goodbye last December? She talked about how the staff can't continue to take on as much as they had during COVID. She made a plea for help. The challenge of all staffs across the country was the question of will folks return? Will youth and children return? 
what is needed, and most importantly, who are we now? How have we changed? And the irony is that this major transition in our community happens at the year of our 100th anniversary celebration, a time when countless hours are going into reviewing pictures, documents, timelines, celebration planning, and looking towards the future. It has been a challenging era of ministry, but here is what I celebrate as I leave today. The intentionality of the elders at each month's table meeting to take the time for sharing sharing prayer, sharing spiritual reflections, inner reflections. This has enabled leadership to stay grounded. There is mutual respect. There has been times of differing viewpoints, but there has been unity in the final decisions. I give thanks for the new leadership that has emerged during the season of PMC life. Paula Kuhn and Kristen Conwell have committed to being partners and being available for putting together memorial receptions. It is one of the most foundational ways that we care for one another, to bring folks to the table, to invite them to share stories while they are dealing with grief and the loss of a loved member. I give thanks for Karen Hartman's call to do the Stephen Ministry training in order to become a leader in this valued program. I also celebrate her leadership in leading the widows group that has become a vital part of our ministry programming. I give thanks for Micah Ingle Eshelman and Caroline McCarty who have joined the small group committee and are passionate about growing the number of small group opportunities within the congregation. I have been so grateful for Michael, our new administrator. He brings a wonderful set of skills and a passionate appreciation for our church. One of the greatest joys has been having the quilt up front be utilized by children rather than folded up on the front seat while we waited for children to be vaccinated and for families to feel safe to come back. It takes time and a deep commitment to this community to serve on the search committee. I am grateful for their work and for the time it takes to read resumes, interview over Zoom, and prayerfully discern the spirits leading. Part of the work in searching for new leadership is to have a clear understanding about who the community is. And I have been grateful to see the clear commitment that our church has held for family promise. It not only has a strong committee, but so many of you have already taken the training to become a volunteer for the weeks of hosting families each year. And we have made a deep commitment to doing anti-racism work. And there is a clear call to having Sunday school this September. And again, 
We give thanks for another new leader, Denise Junt, who had made a commitment to become the Sunday School Coordinator. Part of this year has been about praying through the fog of COVID grief and isolation, mixed with deep concern for our deeply divided political reality. It has called for discerning where spirit is bringing clarity for us to take steps. We have been seeking to discern where do we invest our energy? What do we let go of? What no longer serves? And what do we put on hold for this season? As I end my time as interim pastor, I give thanks in anticipation of the new pastor that will come into this community with their own unique set of gifts. I will be holding the new leader and all of you in my prayers just as I believe there is a blueprint built into each individual, so I believe there is a blueprint built into communities of faith. There are unique sets of gifts that enable certain kinds of faith-based actions to take place. Every time new folks are welcomed into the community and welcomed into leadership, it means that the new gifts are being added and new voices will need to be heard. May we be united in seeking God's vision for Portland Mennonite Church for a new season of ministry. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>